0: Dr. Steve Rudin, along with his twin brother, Dr. Ronald Rudin, is a co-creator of the Havening Techniques. The Havening Techniques are an amazing new psychosensory therapy that I believe have the potential to transform the field of psychotherapy. I'll ask him about that and how this all fits in with coaching on today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. A show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart. Where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level. While you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax. Or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Welcome, Steve Rudin, to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here.
1: Um, I'm really happy to be here, Doug. You're a longtime friend, and it's and it's a pleasure to come join you and talk to you about things I know <laughs> and things I don't. <laughs> the things as well. you don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so
0: we'll cover all those things today. Um, but just for the sake of our listeners although there, they probably heard the introduction that. Um, you and your brother, Ron, created this world of the havening techniques, and uh, it's an amazing thing that you guys have brought to this world, and um, speaking for the rest of the world, thank you for doing so, and um, could you tell us a little bit about that? What, what are the havening techniques for the benefit of our listeners that don't actually know what, what I'm talking about? What are the havening techniques? Well, for simple all, simple question to get started. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, but I, I, there are simple, there are really simple answers to these things. <clears throat> first of all, the people in our community brought havening to the world. Ron and I are just two individuals that came up with an idea that was paid forward by many, many, many wonderful people. So we, Ron and I, look at it that we had an idea and the people that brought this forward uh, are the people that made it what it is today. <clears throat> Secondly, what is it? Well, you know, um, the world of health and uh, how we view health has gone through many iterations. It's um, it started with uh, maybe shamans many years ago and witch doctors, and uh, then it became a little more codified, and people became physicians. And you know, funny um, years ago, uh, barbers were also dentists. Mm-hmm. So um, our barbers were dentists. Barbers were also acted as dentists. In, I did not uh, know that. I knew they yeah. were surgeons that could cut things out because they, yeah, they were dental surgeons. They were dental surgeons. Their job was to get people um, comfortable and then remove their teeth because they didn't have any restorative procedures. They only had uh, surgical uh, oh, things available. Wow. So, and then we came into around the early 1900s and uh, pharmaceuticals became available first one was probably aspirin, put out by the Bayer company out in Germany. And then the pharmaceutical companies thought, well, maybe we can do this, or maybe we could do that. And that gave rise to a a whole paradigm of pharmaceuticals. And and then we became really good because we developed beautiful diagnostic tools to understand things and be able to do uh, surgical interventions, and then came the advent of antibiotics. And as we see now, we're moving into the world of um, psychoneuroimmunology and and using our DNA. And so we see that medicine in many ways over time has evolved using the tools that we have available and the ideas that we have available to keep people healthy. Well, they've done a really great job, but we are in a different place now, which is really interesting. We've been able to, in most of um, modern medicine, be able to corral the diseases of infection through the use of antibiotics. We've been able to even get into places where we can reduce other problems that are presented. The concern that uh, we looked at or the idea we looked at in Havening is that we do not make diagnoses. Therefore, we do not treat symptoms. And the medical establishment as a general rule uh, treats symptoms. Mm -hmm. Now, if we understand that a symptom is an expression of an underlying biological stressor and we treat just the symptom, the biological stressor is still present, but it may express itself in other manner if we get rid of the symptoms and those other manners are called side effects. So, We are, I believe, coming to a point in time when the presentations of our well-being are different than what they were before. Mm -hmm. Our well-being now, what we're seeing is an explosion of autoimmune issues, diseases in which our body turns upon itself rather than having an external agent such as a bacteria or a virus, Mm -hmm. was a problem in our systems. So we're now looking at a paradigm shift. So we're not so much concerned about treating symptoms in the evening. We are concerned in the sense to um, restore the capacity of our systems to return itself to health, to restore homeostasis. So from a conceptual standpoint, Havening as an idea is taking our systems, which we believe now uh, is the thing that's causing uh, symptoms and go to the root cause of the problem. And by solving what the root cause of the problem is, reduce this, the presentations that we are seeing. So we're just in a different time Um, in terms of how we view health and how uh, we are going to look at active well-being. Cool. So so what Havening has done, and this is really quite remarkable and what it is, is what we've uncovered is the ability to actually target specific neurons in a specific part of the brain to turn off the the system from recognizing something as a threat. So if you were, for example, ever bitten by a dog and you walk in the street, you may walk around feeling, oh my God, there's a dog, I may get bitten. Right. So what would it be like if we were able to then go in to your mind and pluck out that little neuron that says it's not necessary to have a stress response any longer because that dog is not a particular threat to you.
0: Right. Let me just stop you, Steve. Um, cause I think you actually made a mistake just now. And, and I, and I can't oh let God. that go past. <laughs> cause, cause, cause I you're know- this. <laughs> what, you, what we do actually in Havening is, is, even to me, more interesting is we go into the brain, not just the mind, but to the brain. So it's not metaphorical. We're not going into the a thought that's stored someplace. We're actually going to a specific neuron yes. behaving in the brain. We're, you know, in a lot of times in NLP hypnosis, whatever, we've used the, you know, analogy of rewiring the brain, but we're not really. We're thinking differently. We're, we're putting the pictures over there we're making this picture smaller or dimmer for, you know moving away we think differently but in havening you actually do rewire and rewire rewire is not true but you you change the brain itself it is as you guys have called it you know applied neuroscience how did you a dentist get to do this how did this come to pass
1: well because <clears throat> you are a dentist right you're not a barber. I, I, was, I, I am. <laughs> I was. Not but, a barber. But, but under, understand that being an identical twin, we have very interesting relationship. Uh-huh. So we've done many projects in the past. So, for example, in the early 1980s, my brother and I opened up the first medical practice that only treated people using nutritional modalities. Oh, I, 1981. I Really? 1980. Yep. And so my brother and I do projects over the years. And one day my brother says, Well, you know, it's funny. I um, was able to cure a phobia by tapping someone on the head. And I said, Really? <laughs> With all the. I said, Go enthusiasm. tap yourself on the head. Go tap yourself on the head. And, um, uh, He said, no, I didn't. Actually, I got rid of a few other phobias of people in my office. And and he said to me, I wonder what's causing this. And I knew at that moment we had another project on board. Mm. And, you know, anytime you have a project that you know nothing about, you have to do reading and you have to do research and you have to uh, immerse yourself into it. So that's what occurred over the for about. 12 to 15 years when we began to read literature or try to understand when we went to look at the literature, of course there was none on how this actually works mm-hmm. description, but over the, over the years from 2003, when we started looking at it to about two till today, where the the neuroscience knowledge has become more and more sophisticated. So we can tease out those things that are relevant to our model in peer-reviewed literature to say, okay, here's how it works. So all it is, we now know how it works. But what happened was, it was just uh, the curious question of, gee, I wonder how this works.
0: That's very, very cool. That's a great story. I've heard Ron tell it um, kind of the origin story from his perspective. That's the first time I've heard it from years. And I'm also really curious about this because I think it's important to note that i'm not making this up when i say we pinpoint the precise neuron it, it is really amazingly targeted havening the havening techniques is remarkably targeted that you go to that specific neuron in the brain and you remove those amper receptors that cause the fight-or-flight response thing to be taking place the trauma or the phobia whatever it might be um how does that work exactly steve how do you how do you um How do you be so precise with a particular
1: response like that? Well, I'm not precise. The client is precise. Okay. So what it is is that if a client has a particular problem, and what I mean by a problem is that if he thinks or if he or she thinks about something and that thought Creates some distress. We believe that it's probably encoded in the brain in a specific place. Generally, it's it's encoded in the uh, lateral nucleus of the amygdala. What's interesting about that is that it the amygdala, which is an almond-shaped uh, organelle of the brain which is involved in keeping us safe and understanding our relationship to others and uh, fear responses, this sends projections to another organism, another organelle in the brain called the thalamus. Now, what's interesting about the thalamus is that all sensory input has to go through the thalamus, except olfactory, including thought, has to go through the the thalamus for selection, for relevance. So if we have something that an event or a series of events or even some uh, things that happen in early childhood or in birth or even in our grandparents uh, there that alerts the thalamus to select this item the thalamus selects the item out of all the data that's coming in because it's worried about a threat and that sends the information rapidly to the amygdala and the amygdala sends it on to the hypothalamus, and the hypothalamus allows for the expression of norepinephrine, adrenaline, and cortisol in the system to get us ready for uh, any circumstance that may arise. Short-term, that's great. Short-term, that's great. Long-term, very bad. So um, the issue is, is that the individual the client is very readily able to locate that neuron themselves where that thought processes is and then through understanding of the underlying science of how that thought got there we then apply an approach that removes that particular thought from that space the emotion aspect of Mm -hmm. that thought from that space, so it is no longer chosen by the thalamus and therefore is no longer stimulative.
0: Gotcha. Now, that makes total sense to me. And um, I'm thinking that it's maybe one or two people out there listening to that who haven't heard it before might be going like, what now? Um, So so I would just like to say, um, this is the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, and we will talk about coaching today. Because um, I'm, I'm very curious, you have some very nice credentials in the coaching world, as well as being uh, obviously great credentials in the dental world and other things as well. But getting back to Havening briefly, um, or at least right now, um, I don't know how brief it'll be, it might be for the rest of the conversation, but right now we're getting back. The way that we we get that particular neuron um, pinpointed is that we say so tell us what's what's the problem and the client brings it up to the surface brings it up to the surface of their awareness they think about this thing and sometimes if it's a you know very traumatic experience or very you know active present one it it can take seconds for them to be you know fully activated and we ask for them to rate that on a scale of zero to ten the suds scale the subjective unit of distress scale and um Once it's activated, if they're feeling the fear, if they're feeling that thing, that's how we know that that neuron is activated. Those amp receptors are potentiated on the surface and they're causing the hypothalamus to send those signals out there Mm -hmm. and getting the fight or flight response or getting the palpitating heart rate, et cetera, et cetera. So very simply, that's how we pinpoint exactly where to do work. So how then does um havening works, Steve Rudin, how do you, how do you go from activating that particular neuron to like, you know, stroking your arms or stroking the face or whatever? And what the heck does that have to do with anything, you know, in your brain? How is this havening touch, stroking the arms from the shoulders down to the elbows, the stroking of the face because it stimulates whatever it does? How does that work?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I'll try to give a really simple analogy. So I mentioned before or earlier that we went and are still involved in the world of pharmaceuticals, Mm -hmm. the ingestion of uh, an extrinsic drug that alters our functioning. Havening works by the introduction of something called electroceuticals. Now, an electroceutical is an electric wave, which is uh, generated by our own bodies. Mm-hmm. And under the right circumstances, uh, it can actually remove the underlying uh, motion from that memory. So in a little bit more detail is the electroceutical that is the change agent is called a delta wave. And that's approximately 0.4 to 1.8 hertz. And now a hertz is um, how high and how low a wave goes in a one second moment. So this has a 0.4 from the bottom to the top, to the bottom again, up to 1.8 in one second. So by touching your arms or your face or your hands, it creates a delta wave. This delta wave goes into your brain. And if at the moment that you are imagining something that happened, it causes some changes in the brain that removes the cue from that part of the brain that stimulates a stress response. So it's all intrinsically generated. The client generates through imaginal recall the event that neuron is activated. The client applies, or sometimes a, a facilitator applies, uh, touch, which, by the way, <clears throat> certainly is one of the most ancient modalities that uh, we that are there it true. just it just lost its place in the pantheon of therapies because we had drugs and other things but it need it needs to be placed back into an important part of uh, the therapeutic regimens yeah
0: no that has always been one of the things that attracted me to havening is it just seems so organic you know it's like i've i've used this analogy before when i talk about it but um if a ch- child goes running to his mother his or her mother, um, because they're afraid of lightning in the dark. You know, they don't, mother doesn't say, oh, that's very interesting. Uh, sit down. Let's talk about this. And where does this come from? How long have you been having this issue? How does it make you feel? You know, they don't do psychotherapy. They don't do tapping. They don't start, you know, patting them on the head. They, they, they reassure them. They, they stroke them. They say, it's okay, Johnny. It's okay. Whatever else, you know, it's, it's a physical touch thing that's so reassuring and comforting which means you bring them to a safe haven hence the word that you guys came up with Mm -hmm. right we're bringing to this place of of safety of haven and so from a place where there was no haven inescapability we're bringing them to a place of of safety and and havening the um also the fascinating thing that i I think is not been stated explicitly right now so i'm going to go ahead and do that is that any sensation doesn't have to be a stroke of the arm. Any sensation at all that you see, hear, feel, anything at, at all is all electrical chemical. Our bodies are electrical chemical organisms. The brain itself is, you know, is this little mass of protoplasm, you know, locked between your skull. You know, it doesn't see anything. It doesn't hear anything. It doesn't feel anything. It's all electrical chemical. Any, any, any sensation, any sound, any thing you see is transduced into an electrical chemical signal. To get to the brain so the brain can say, Oh, I saw that, or Oh, I heard that, or I felt that. It's all electrical kind of thing. And they, that's the language. Yeah. So, but what you guys discovered is that certain parts of the body, um, I guess through the research of um, Mel Harper that you discovered, you know, certain parts of the body that it's predominantly generating delta waves and that you can put that to positive use because the, the delta waves produce oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, and GABA in the brain. And then, of course, the calcineurin activity, which is uh, getting into the voltage-sensitive calcium channels in the amygdala. Okay. Right? Right. Yeah, totally right. Should I pass the science test, doctor? (laughs) Certainly. Yeah, thank you. But, I mean, it's it's amazing to me that that happens with this just very – organic touch human human touch
1: you know many many years ago doug they didn't you know like for cars they have garages but we don't have we never had a body garage Hmm. so we had to learn body the body had to learn early on how to heal itself because if you had a small wound and the body did not learn how to heal itself the organism would die so the body had to learn healing Itself, Mm -hmm. but we forgot. We forgot that that touch can uh, create significant change, and and even at a more profound level, all the studies show that newborn babies without touch fail to thrive in spite of adequate nutrition. So, it's it's a fundamental aspect of mammals, of, of of our our species or our class of our mammalia to uh, use uh, intimate contact as part of our relationship issues.
0: It's not interesting because so much of um like Western medicine is touchless. Um, m- maybe doctors or dentists will, will palpitate you
1: know, I people it. all the time. As a dentist? Yeah. I, yeah. I invade the most highly innervated part of their anatomy.
0: Right. Okay, but um, coaches don't, and, and and therapists don't. We we sit across the room and, and or across the phone lines or whatever, and and talk about stuff.
1: Right. We 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 talk. So talk therapy. It, it, it <clears throat> my my you know my sense these days about thinking about all these things is that. The, the secret to those things is to create a safe space for the client to make their own change. I I, it, it, I think that if I were to look, you know, in my coaching uh, mm-hmm. days, <clears throat> the most of the discussions we had in our, in our didactic lectures or some of them related to the presence of the coach. We spent a lot of time discussing the presence of the coach and and the importance of the presence of the coach. But I felt that was very, very um, um, limiting because actually there are six presences during coaching. And it's really very, it's almost never discussed. Yeah, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. So please. Right. Yes. so so um this guy Clutterbuck, I think wrote a number of articles on presence and and how he viewed um it's in the it's in the uh, coaching literature somewhere you can look them up how he viewed the relationship and what he looked at was three interlocking rings on a horizontal uh, line so one center ring and then another ring that in, in in is both connected to the center ring so you have three sep two separate rings and a, a central ring so when you look at the relationship we have to view from a coaching standpoint uh, the construct of a you have the presence of the coach b you have the presence of the client and c you have the co-join space presence of where the work is going to be done. In a coaching terms, you can say, well, we're putting it on the table. So let's look at from a metaphorical standpoint, uh, you're putting it on the table. Now, what this does, which is really interesting, uh, is it allows for um, both co-join goal movement and yet at the same time, autonomy of the individual. So it's not like an empathetic issue where the circles are uh, uh, surround each other Mm -hmm. and encompass each other. That's empathy. But compassion and creating safe spaces creates not only the ability for both the client and the um, facilitator to remain autonomous, but it also requires that space upon which the work is done. So those are three particular presences. The fourth presence uh, is the meta-presence. That means that during sessions, and we could talk about this in terms of constructs of listening and what does that mean and how do you listen and how many, all, and understanding that all your senses are engaged in the process of listening? It's not just an auditory experience. Mm-hmm. So you have visual, you have kinesthetic, you have um, all those yep. are, are involved. But part of the process in terms of a session involves the facilitator. To uh, almost float above the moment and observe the client in that way so they could better respond. So we have now the facilitator, we have the client, we have the co-joined space upon which the uh, work is done, and we have the meta position that allows the facilitator to help um, guide the session. The fourth and fifth um, presences are part of the debrief. What has the client, what space has the client moved from and to because of your session? Mm-hmm. And the sixth one is what space has the facilitator or coach moved to after the session as well. So mm-hmm. we have to consider both the the, the coach and the client, the co-join space, the debrief of both the client and the facilitator, and the coach, as well as the meta position during uh, a coaching session. That's how I view it. Okay, cool. Hey, I have a question
0: for you, Steve. Sure. Uh, when did you start getting into coaching? You, you were a
1: dentist. I got my degree in 2012. And was it? But, but understand this, Doug. Over the course of my career, I met and personally interacted with over a quarter of a million people. Wow. Coaching and communication and meeting a quarter of a million people under stressful situations gave me insights that no one can have unless you see that many people. Well, sorry, you had to... Coaching is... Coaching is... um, Uh, Coaching is a a paradigm that is derived from uh, fundamental psychotherapeutics, uh, listening, um, a whole wide variety of skill sets that come in to help people develop. And I would coach my patients all the time to have them choose a preferred future in regards to their health. So I was their dental health coach, but it was in a highly specific area but the principles were all the same yeah
0: yeah
1: education um, understanding knowledge uh, insights uh, safe places development of plans all those things were all the same i did this over the course of 50 years more than a quarter of a million times so coaching and being a doc are the same wow so you had a quarter of a million patients over fifty years. Wow! Now that, imagine my experience, and and not only that, I had wonderful mentors that helped me understand the space. Wow! That's
0: so that that, it's amazing. a unique
1: it's a unique experience. So what made you think you needed to go get a coaching degree then? Well, because I, uh, well, because we were beginning to evolve, havening, I couldn't use my dental degree as part and parcel of my outreach to the world. So we, I decided I was going to get a coaching degree. Wow! And you went to NYU for that? Yep. I, I actually, the story is. I and it was given at night, so I would leave my office at five o'clock, drive from Long Island into the city to NYU, park my car, and did this for a couple of years to get the coaching degree. Which, as you know, traveling into New York from Long Island uh, to do that twice a week for a couple of years is no easy feat.
0: No, not at all. Not at all. Wow, that's dedication. Well, we,
1: we. I wanted to get this accomplished.
0: And you did. And so, um, wow, was it worth it?
1: I think that that all all knowledge that I've gained in this journey so far has given me a greater understanding of my place in the world. And, you know, even in our uh, organization, how to structure it what you know you know people come into the organization everything it 's somewhat structured, but the early days, and you were there the early days, a lot of these things were formulated, all of the constructs that you see, even though they seem now uh, that 's the way it is, all had to be thought out, and the coaching really helped develop um, structural issues that uh, made this thing very very um non-hierarchical and open and warm and understanding that. So, uh, yeah, it was very, very helpful in terms of how we were going to think about sessions and how we created sessions and what outcomes, all those things, all these things uh, take from different aspects of uh, our skill sets. Cool.
0: What would you say, I'm just curious, um, of of the things that you learned at coaching, because this, this is called the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, and the subtitle for this podcast are the systems and the secrets that keep, set the best apart, something like that. Um, maybe it's systems and secrets, maybe it's secrets and systems, I'll have to go back and check. But at any rate, it's both those things. Um, so I'm curious, what about from the coaching world did you feel was essential for Havening that, you know, Havening would not be the same without this thing that we you stole or, you know, I gotten, think.
1: Um, you know. <clears throat> I'll tell you a funny story. Um, after I finished my coaching degree. Well, while actually, while I was getting my ACC, I finished my coaching degree from NYU, and then I wanted to have some continuing education. So I contacted the International Coaching Federation and I decided I was going to become an ACC, which is an associate coach in their, in their orbit. Uh So I look in, um, and I have to get a mentor, uh, as part of parcel of it. So, I, take, I open up uh, coaches in New York, ICF coaches in New York, and I take my pen and I put my pen in one person, her name is Lori Lawson. And Laurie Lawson, at little did I know at that time, was president of the New York chapter of the ICF. And I get on the phone at, with Laurie and I say, Laurie, this is going to really sound weird, this is the first time we're ever talking. However, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to change coaching for the, in the world. And Lori says, Who is this? <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> what are you calling me for? <laughs> right. What are you calling me? And I said, No, seriously, yeah, we're going to change this. And uh, we became friends. I've, I've been on her TV show, um, Point of View, I think it's called, and a number of times talking about it. But it was really a matter that. Um, Uh, I felt that coaching could use another tool other than just talking Mm -hmm. and that in my experience with coaching, it, I found that what held people back was not the construct of what to do, but the Thing that kept them stuck was the thing that really was the most challenging thing that I found. Why we agree, you're we going to do X, Y, Z, and we have a time for it, and you're going to report back to me that you did this, and in maybe it was just because I was a beating coach or whatever the case may be, but the client would come back, and sometimes they wouldn't do it, and I would say, "Well, I thought we agreed." And, I, I, you know, trying to use a cognitive approach to overcome a, a biologic problem, uh, I found to be um, very arduous to, to continually go back to the same spots to try to get the person to take the step when biologically, whatever held them back, I'm mm-hmm. not worthy, I'm um, fear of success, I'm um, fear of failure, all those things were really biologically driven not cognitively driven so we started applying um, biology to the coaching world and the results really uh, really worked out phenomenally well so you started adding biology by adding havening
0: yes interesting could you give me an example of that
1: well I mean You know, an example was I was at a a conference and we were doing demos. So the person says, I said, anyone feel they have something they want to? um... Someone I know, I'll I'll change that. Someone I know was suffering from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And they were unable to move forward. They gave up their um, career. They gave up a a whole relationships. They just went into their bubble and was unable to come out because of this particular event. We are able to apply. And this person had gone to everyone to talk to, and very bright person, but this person couldn't get past this event that occurred. So through the use of havening and the ability to remove the emotional component from uh, the event, the person was then able to shed the fear and then move forward and was very successful in uh, creating a a wonderful life for themselves. Yeah, I can think of a number of examples
0: where that's true in my coaching practice as well. It's curious, you know, I've been doing NLP for a long time. I first learned it back in 1985, so it's been a few years. And I did very well with NLP and uh, very well with hypnosis, you know, added to NLP and made it all the better and um, have perhaps not a quarter of a million, but a heck of a lot of patients that I've worked with over the years or clients that I've worked with over the years, especially if you consider the groups that I did. I used to travel doing group hypnosis for smoking cessation and weight loss. So, I've done a lot of hypnosis sessions over the years. And yet, when I learned Havening in 2013 from you and your brother, um, I I do Havening with probably 90%, I don't know, maybe 80, 90, whatever. But most of my people that I work with from time to time, we will do Havening at least once. I don't know. But even in my coaching practice, even when I'm just talking to people on the phone or talking to people over the Zoom, it's rare it's rare that at some point or another we don't do havening um almost always we do today i was on a a coaching call just before our this podcast started with a a client of mine and we were talking about a certain thing she said well maybe i should do some havening now i said yeah yeah let's do that (laughs) you know so it works and it really does it changes not just the uh the neurochemistry that's happening in the brain at the moment because you can downregulate your system real real quickly with a, a nice dose of dopamine and serotonin and you know the GABA and the oxytocin it feels real nice and you feel much calmer much quicker than you wouldn't under any other circumstances but it, it leads to another way of, of thinking opens other possibilities suddenly well, suddenly things are possible yeah yeah uh, and, And you have a lovely term that you call um, neostasis.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, neostasis is, uh, we're all, we all are in neostasis now, which means new state because we're all impacted by the virus. So we've adapted a little bit now, you know, we adapted to the the unseen predator, and now we're um, recalling that early, those early dates in New York. And we're feeling a little stressed again. So, a neostasis is co- constructually a place that we are unable to return to homeostasis, and that becomes our new homeostasis. That becomes our new set point for our systems. And over time, this neostasis uh, creates uh, significant um, underlying problems. We we call those things disease. Mm-hmm. Okay, so neostasis, it's not something to strive for. It's not a good thing? No. Well, you can create everything, has its positive and negative. So um, you can hold both positive and negative thoughts at the same time. So a single mother working two jobs can hold the distress of the fact that she's working so hard to support her child and yet also have the youth stress, the positive stress uh, that she is providing for her child and doing the right thing and caring for her by doing this work. So you can hold both of those. And, and the same thing uh, about neostasis. You can create neostasis that are also very positive, that are also very forward-looking for the individual. Yes, but basically stasis means state, so it's a state. So you homeostasis means it remains within a line. A neostasis is um, a new state, whether it be negative or positive. And an allostasis is um, the change place. The uh, the we could, We're moving on to the understanding that the construct is allostasis. How much energy is the body required to maintain homeostasis. Got it. That's called allostasis or allostatic load. Uh And the Uh greater the allostatic load, the greater the energy requirements of the body to maintain homeostasis, such as if you were to jump into a cold water, the cold water is an allostatic load to maintain your core temperature. So your body would go through different things, shut off peripheral circulation, try to keep internal core temperature high. So that's an allostatic load uh, on a biologic basis, but you can have an allostatic load on an emotional basis as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Interesting. That's, that's very good. And so then
0: how, how does havening, how does having this um, ability to, you know, downregulate the system, change things,
1: how does it affect Uh, resilience well first of all we have to define what resilience is
0: okay
1: now my brother and i have these discussions all the time but i'm going to give you my view okay (laughs) since
0: he's not here i think he's not
1: here i'm going to give you my view (laughs) resilience is the capacity to return to homeostasis okay that's how I view resilience nice so and, and the reason for that is that it um, it reduces the demand for energy in the brain and the rest of the system, so if you're reducing a uh, demand, you're allowing the organism to come to homeostasis or to a very efficient way of working so um resilience is the capacity to have and that's how we learn by the way mm-hmm. we we learn by uh sticking our neck out a little bit seeing what's going on and then able to find the path back to our homeostasis and then we learn that path to stick our neck out a little bit more or to take on a more complex client or to do these things and as we gain that ability to to Ex- move into a more stressful relationship and move back to homeostasis, we develop those pathways that allow us to explore in different ways. So the resilience is the ability to have a stressor and then come back to homeostasis and learn those pathways.
0: That's My a, brother that's
1: will a, say, I'll just give you his point of view. Resilience okay. is an in the, at the moment issue where you're able to withstand a stressor. I think it's a, uh, and they both be both right. My view is, is that it's the capacity to return to homeostasis. Yeah. Since, they, since he's not here they,
0: and he probably will never listen to this. I'd say you're right. He's not right. You, you. I totally agree with you, Steve Rudin. Okay. Um, absolutely. You are the the right brother.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's very funny you said that because in my first lecture I gave, I said that Ron and I feel like the Wright brothers, Uh huh. you know, two guys in Ohio making an airplane in which governments at that time were spending hundreds of millions of dollars to figure out flight. And these two brothers figured it out. Uh-huh. So I actually said, well, we're kind of like the Wright brothers in this. But well, in this case, you're the Wright, Wright
0: brother of, right. of the two. Um, so, I like that. And it's also interesting in coaching that uh, I think sometimes people are stuck because of this allostatic homeostatic thing that that well, there's neostasis. Well, so they but they if they if they get if if change, you know, they people want to do better in their life, right? They want they want to Create uh, self improvement. They want to create a business. They want to, you know, this is not normal to move up to another level. that's so this other level is going to re- require other ways of thinking and being and doing. more allostatic load. Exactly. So it's going to yeah. So it requires unusual things, not normal things, to be happening. So hence allostatic load. And part of the tendency would be to go back to where we were because that's comfortable and understood. And so in a sense, we have to, got to learn is to create a neostasis, a new normal, new way of being that the, I can handle this kind
1: of demand on my body, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's similar to placing iron in, in a hot thing and then annealing it. So after a while, you take it in and out. After a while, the iron becomes steel. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. Wow. Cool. Nice, nice metaphor there. Cool. Thank you, Steve. You know, it, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. I have great, great fun and great discussions with you. But um, I think it is amazing that the Wright Brothers analogy is, is brought up because it is true. I mean, you are, you know, a couple of guys, a couple of brothers who are, are changing the world. I think that Havening really will. I don't know about coaching per se, but certainly this world of psychotherapy is changing um, rapidly. Because you know, it's it's odd to think about curing phobias and curing. I mean, doctors talking about cures. Uh, you don't usually hear that that nomenclature. You know, a cure, a
1: cure a trauma. How do you do that? And yet you are. Well, but we we we're uh, we're moving away from the word trauma. It's a bad word. Yeah, and the, it's it's a psychosocial word. Right and it's not appropriate. We look at it uh, from a biologic perspective. So we call these things event-specific biologic markers. Event-specific biologic markers, got it. So at the time of a specific event that creates the distress, the body encodes this event-specific biological marker, which informs the thalamus to watch out for it. So the thalamus then watches out for it more than it should, and creates low-level stresses, which creates allostatic load, which then creates disease, and then then symptoms. So then we create the symptoms. Uh, we treat the symptoms, but we don't look at what the uh, initial uh, sensitizing event was, and you know. Because you've done it once, you remove the initial sensitizing event, the emotional component of it, the symptomology dif- disappears. Yeah, just that, just that way it goes. I have five minutes left. Okay, well then we should probably
0: wrap up pretty soon. Yeah. So, S- <laughs> Steve Rudin, if people, um, do you still do coaching? If anybody wanted to do coaching with you, is that a I,
1: I do not do coaching. Um, my time is really dedicated to running the business running the business of the Havening.org.
0: So if people want to find out about Havening, you go to Havening.org or they just call mm-hmm. me up, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, will, I will leave you with two of my favorite phrases for Great. your coaching friends. Okay. Yeah. So that they, maybe they will get some insight. Great. The first one is, The purpose of purpose is purpose. The purpose of purpose is purpose. Yes. You can write that down and think about it for a bit. I will. I will
0: totally do that.
1: And the second one is, it's more important to be in time than on time.
0: I like that. So those are
1: my, those Would you my like to talk to about them, them
0: at all? Would you just, I just want to leave them like that and let, let people, people think, think about, them. about them. All right. Good. More important to be in time than on time. I agree. And it's nice to know you can have both at the same time. Absolutely. Steve Rudin, thank you so much for being here at the
1: Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thanks, Doug. My pleasure, always, anytime.
0: Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me. If you want any more information about today's show, please visit our website at www.essentialcoachingskills.com. Be sure to tune in again next week for our next episode and discover even more about the systems and the secrets that set the
1: best apart.